Hello, everybody. I'm Pat Costello. And I'm Patrick. And this is a little old podcast, and we've called it Sometimes Wrong. But never in doubt. Because we are the world's greatest experts on our own opinions. That's right. I've got a great theme song for us. What are you doing? Well, we didn't have a music budget. You have a theremin right next to you. He said this would be better. <laughs> My theremin playing. He's very critical. I'll show you, folks. Let's see, let's 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 see. He's been he's he's been very critical of me. Let's see if I can do this. Bring it down. Maybe something Irish. I don't know what that was. It's That's not- right, folks. Welcome to Sometimes Wrong, Never in Doubt, brought to you by Public Broadcasting. We're brought to you by Tummy Sprinkles. They're little rainbow sprinkles you put in your tummy when you're feeling blue. They're full of Prozac. <laughs> now, as you can tell, Patrick isn't quite right. I'm a boomer. He's a Gen Xer. Oh, I'm a very Gen Xer. <laughs> I got the memo in high school, and one of my teachers said, well, there's a good chance there's going to be a thermonuclear war, and the war will end. I got up and said, what the fuck am I doing here, and walked out. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> well, lit a cigarette my way out. <laughs> <laughs> Still passed the class. <laughs> they kept, well... We'll, we'll prove you need to be here. We'll have you take this test. And they didn't understand. I was cutting school to hang out in the library and read all day. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, that, that's how dumb my teachers were. I think you read every book in the Havertown Library. I had I had a high school history teacher stand up and say, the Japanese and the Germans were only defending their unique way of life. <laughs> Again. <laughs> <laughs> what did Tom Lear say? We taught them a lesson in 1918. They haven't bothered us since then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what we're going to be doing here, in between Patrick's manic uh, Thurman experiments. Don't, don't make me break out the banjo. Oh, maybe later. I got black belt and banjo, oh, oh, white belt and Thurman. <laughs> We're going to be talking about things that we have very strong opinions on. Sometimes our opinions will clash. Sometimes they will mesh. But we're going to give it our best to uh, appro- approach things from angles that most people might not see. Well, my father and I, I've, I've, led, I've had the privilege to lead a very unique and very challenging life. I have multiple handicaps. And every time a person has looked down at me, patted me on the head, and given me a list of things I'm never going to be able to do. You went out and did them. Well, after I told them what they could do with their list. (laughs) (laughs) And Dad's been there for a few of those. (laughs) But another thing, and I want to say this before, before we get into today's discussion. Like Dad said, our opinions on some things are very different. We grew up in very different worlds. When Dad grew up... He grew up around World War II and later Korean War veterans. I grew up around and going to karate class with Vietnam vets. It's a different experience and a different outlook, a different sense of patriotism. Yeah, yeah. And we also had the experience of growing up in small businesses. We know we, when you grow up in a hoagie shop and you have police officers and firemen and 
car salesmen and big businessmen. I mean, big business execs. And one guy owned a, one of your customers used to own a, a line of hair salons. Yeah, 15 hair salons. And these guys, all of them would have all these different clashing opinions, but they'd all get over it before the, before breakfast was over. Yeah, they finish your omelet, drink their coffee, and hit the road. The one thing the young folks have forgotten, and a lot of adults today have forgotten, is that the great thing about different opinions is that you have an opinion, I have an opinion. Dumb people use that to bang together like blocks. Smart people look at a different opinion and learn. Yeah. And yeah. both come away stronger. Yeah, absolutely. My father is my best friend because I'm smart enough to know that I'm not young enough to know everything. <laughs> you know, I, he's seen things I haven't. He's got years on me, but he also has a different viewpoint than I do. You have different, we have different assets. Absolutely. We have a lot of discussions about point of view. And when it comes to point of view today, this one's going to be a hard one because today we're going to talk about something that hit home and hit us hard. And in fact, I am still putting, both of us are still putting the pieces back together from the opioid crisis. Now, let me set the stage for this. Patrick got married in 19, no, 2010. And him and his wife were living in Northern Virginia. Patrick was a normal young man, looking forward to a great life. He had his publishing, he had his music. Well, he started having operations, first on his ears, because he's been always pretty much deaf. Well, they botched one, botched another one, cut a wrong muscle here, a nerve there, and they gave him an opioid. Then he had his shoulder operated on. They gave him opioids. Then he had his spine operated on. Oh, guess what? Mose, more opioids. Was hosed with them. Hosed. <laughs> and then just every doctor he went to, his answer to the pain was, here, take these magic pills. You'll feel great. Well, they never told them to go off the damn pills. They just kept renewing the prescriptions, keep taking them. Well, during the few years that this was going on, Patrick went from a, a 210-pound, 6'2 gentleman to a 320, 30-pound... Almost 350 at one point. ...monster. He, he wasn't my son anymore. When he would visit, I would see a dead man walking because he didn't know where he was or who he was or what he was doing. And all this under the auspices of stupid doctors in Northern Virginia. You can name the hospitals if you want. I don't, I don't remember where they were. Well, before I get into the hospitals, I want to preface it with one thing. and This is something people may not believe, but... When I was 12, my father stuck me in martial arts classes with adults. And it was 1982. There were no kids' karate classes back then. I was put in the ring with adults, and I trained like a maniac. I was teaching adult stick and knife fighting before I was 14. And I never took a drug. And when I was diagnosed with epilepsy and left the martial arts, they told me, if you get high, you're going to have a seizure. 
And since seizures, when you're epileptic, are like the worst thing in the world, I didn't want to have a seizure. So I did not, up until I was 48, I never touched marijuana. I never took a hard drink. And in 2008, I had my first procedure at Johns Hopkins, and things started. The problem is, is Dr. Naparco, he was a groundbreaking, very famous celebrity surgeon, screwed up. I went in for a possible cholesteatoma. It's a tumor in the inner ear that can do horrible things to your body. Because I was a musician and I learned to play the guitar with my teeth through bone conduction, he ignored the cholesteatoma and pushed me into a bone-anchored hearing aid. The hearing aid restored my hearing. It was wonderful. It was the most amazing thing in my life, but they didn't fix the cholesteatoma. So not being able to hear, you can't meet people. I never dated. I met Amy when I was 40. A year later, we get married. I'm 41 years old. I start getting sick. I actually hemorrhaged out of my right ear. And we find out that not, not only is the cholesteatoma huge now, but it's actually eaten away the bone in my inner ear to the point where my facial nerves could be compromised. What that moment did to my wife is indescribable because she changed. All the hope of our future, all the dreams, all the... You, you remember how excited she was? Yeah, yeah. Remember how she cried after that doctor's visit? Mm -hmm. The doctor came in with a CAT scan, angry. He thought I was playing a practical joke on him. There's no way Johns Hopkins would miss this. So I go back to Johns Hopkins because that's what my wife wanted. I wanted to keep her happy. Dr. Parco admits, oh, well, you know, we should have gotten the cholesteatoma. But we can get it. Oh, by the way, it's in both ears. So two cholesteatoma operations, and they were rough. But I got through them. They hosed me with hydrocodone. I got off it and went through withdrawal. Go back to Johns Hopkins. Oh, the cholesteatomas are still there. We didn't get it all. Which year? Both of them. Now, this is the, va the vaunted... The world-famous Dr. DeParco and, and the world-famous Johns Hopkins. Well, while this was happening, we were still having trouble with my bone-anchored hearing aid on my right side. And rather than admit that they really had done the surgery wrong, now they don't cut a big hunk of muscle out of the side of your head. But I was in the early days of the procedure, and back then they would cut a muscle about hunk of muscle about the size of my fist, enough that my ear doesn't lay right <laughs> on my right side. And because they set the bone-anchored hearing aid so deep, the muscle and all that as it healed kept swallowing the abutment that the hearing aid clips to. So Dr. Naparco would either burn or cut that off with no anesthesia. Now, I'm Irish Catholic. When you're Irish Catholic and you go to parochial school as a kid, you learn something. If you point out that somebody's an asshole, not only will the nun punch you in the mouth, she'll tell you you're going to hell for being rude. <laughs> so when you, you grow up like that, you don't tell the doctor, if you hurt me again, I'm going to break your arm. You grit your teeth and tell yourself, this person's trying to help you. But one, of the, one day, they were cutting the skin around. They tried burning at first, and that didn't work. Yeah, they used some kind of acid. It was uh, silver nitrate. Yeah, okay. And then they... 
And God, the smell of that, it smells like, it, and I'm, I'm laying on the, on the table trying to stay still because this wasn't a procedure room. This was an exam room. They just laid the table down, closed the door, and told a med student to watch out for nurses. And I, I should know that this isn't legit, but you're with me. I'm like, okay, he's a doctor. Maybe I can trust him. And the nurse came in, and you turned around, and there was so much blood on the counter, on the floor, on the tray where he had the tools that they actually changed procedure in the otolaryngology department at Johns Hopkins. I don't know if the effects edict's still in place, but to even look at the abutment, like to loosen or to tighten it, you had to go down into, into the surgical area. Surgical area, yeah. Because they were afraid that you know, they're going to break out the sulfur nitrate and the scalpels again. Well, as this was happening, right before the third surgery, Dr. Naparco warned me that the operation in my left ear might be bad and that I wasn't going to have any hearing left. I still had some hearing in my left ear, but they were going to have to cut everything out. And I was cool with that. It would stop the infections. I'd have a bone-anchored hearing aid. I could go on with my life. I woke up from the procedure screaming. There was two nurses holding me down, and he was trying to keep a handful of gauze over my left ear because I was bleeding. Uh, they cut the muscle bed that holds the inner ear together. He'd gotten excited and decided to try and rebuild the three bones of my inner ear rather than... In an exam room? No, he did this in the surgery. Okay. But it wasn't what he was supposed to do. He changed the... the, the it's like a quarterback changing, changing the game plan without telling the team or the football, <laughs> me being the football. <laughs> and I woke up screaming, and they had to admit me and hook me up to a pain pump. Now, understand something. I have the pain tolerance of a yak. You know this. Yes, I've seen you. What would, what would it take for somebody like me to be curled up in the fetal position and scream for 12 hours? It would take a spinal tap <laughs> amplifier going to 11. It was, I've never... And the thing is, the pain never went away. Right now, as I'm sitting here talking to you, it literally feels like the inside of my left ear all the way down the side of my jaw is being torn off. That never goes away. It never goes away. And he told, Dr. Naparco told me after the surgery, I'd come in for a checkup visit. And I was like, I, this, I can't deal with the pain. He said, you're going to be on pain meds for the rest of your life. You're going to be an addict. He wrote a prescription and left. I didn't see him again. My next appointment was with wound up being with another, one of his other doctors, and then Doctor Parker left for California, and he croaked, and he died, and things kept going wrong. The next doctor broke the drill, putting the bone anchored hearing aid on my left side. The surgery on my left shoulder was a nightmare. The surgery on my spine, that was done by the guy that works on the football stars at Fair Oaks Hospital. You're not even going to have a scar. Do I have a scar, Dad? You look like Frank and Frankenstein. Yeah. I mean, they literally butchered me. And then they, they hosed me down with so much narcotics, opioids, that I don't remember much of 2013. I, I remember I, I was trying to get off the, the opioids at one point, and I woke up one morning, and I could not move. And I didn't know if it was because I was starting to go into withdrawal or something was wrong. And I called Amy and asked her to make me a doctor's appointment because I, I can't move. This is horrible. Instead, she called my 
my neurologist, and she came home with the biggest bottle of Vicodin I've ever seen. And I don't remember much after that. I remember her waking me up every once in a while, poking me, get up, take, take your pills. And I remember thinking, I'm dying. That's what I thought when I saw you. I, 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 got, I was editing a video. I was teaching banjo online. And I was editing a video. And I realized I didn't look like me anymore. I was so fat. I looked like a cartoon character. Yep. And here's the, here's the crazy thing about the opioid crisis from, from somebody who's, who's been there and had this, this garbage running through their system. It didn't stop the pain. I was still in agony. The only thing that was different was part of my brain was so soaked with whatever this sauce was that all the good in me was gone. Well, when you came home for a lengthy visit, I wrote down everything you were taking and went over to see our family doctor's nurse. I gave her the list, and she looked up with a look of horror and said, we don't give this to stage four cancer patients, this much dope. Hydrocodone, um, there was another hydro something, then there was oxycodone, oxycontin, um, Ex-algo, which turned out to be some kind of uh, morphine derivative. Delauded. Delauded. Uh, Valium. All at one goddamn time. It was, it, there was like, how many, tra- there was two trays I had to go through every day. Prescribed by doctors. People here, you trusted. And here's the thing, folks. I never did drug-seeking behavior. I never did. And near the end, before dad intervened, I went into convulsions. It wasn't a seizure. My left side of my face started twitching like somebody had a fish hook in the corner of my mouth. My right arm and right leg started jumping in the air. And we go to the hospital, and the hospital's like, we don't know what's going on. It's not a stroke. Go home. And I said to my wife, it's the pain meds. I'm taking too much of this. I'm I'm too heavy. You're too heavy. At the time, right about then, she had been informed that she was super obese. And it went right over her head. Just and she, her reaction to me about not, you know getting off the opioids was, but the doctors prescribed them. The trust she was actually angry with me that I was going against our doctors, and when I went to I came down to Chrisfield to visit my folks and Dad, he did the one thing. Have you ever seen the movie where Brendan Fraser and Christopher Walken live in the underground bunker? You know the one, blast from the past. Oh yeah, yeah. And the Christopher Walken's son. I don't understand. Why are you asking me to do this? And the Brendan Fraser says, "Dad, I'm asking you to trust me and not understand why." And Christopher Walken goes, "Well, in that case, all I can say is yes." And watching that movie, Amy goes, "My God, they must have visited you and your dad because that's how we are." When Dad said, "You're going with me to see Doctor Atkins," I didn't want to go, but I went. And. I didn't know why we were going. I knew I was sick. I knew he was worried because he kept looking at me like it was the last time he was ever going to see me. It might have been. But you're not sentimental like that. I had nothing to do with sentiment. <laughs> you would have needed an extra large casket. That's true. <laughs> they would No, they would have buried me in a freezer. <laughs> but but, fo- folks, 
when I laid eyes on him, I saw, as I said before, I saw a dead man walking. Now, the damage was done with this stuff. He was an addict, no doubt about it. You can become addicted to one of these, let alone a fruit salad of deadly chemicals. So first thing we had to do is get the shit out of his system. No, the first thing I had to do was talk to my wife. Oh. And here, here's the thing, folks. Every person you meet, every person you encounter is facing challenges you cannot understand. My wife had baggage, but her reaction to, honey, I just been to Dr. Adkins. He, we just had a serious talk, and he just laid it out. I'm physically dependent on these meds, and if I don't stop taking them, I'm going to die. And she said, well, that's just what he said. You're still going to take them. So the first thing I had to do to get off pain meds was stay here in Crisfield. If you have somebody in your life that is trying to get clean, there are things you can do to create some distance, to give, give each other some space. There are things you can say. Do not leave that person alone. Because if I didn't have my dad, if I didn't have my mom, here while I was going through this, I wouldn't have made it. And that's that's the thing when pe- when people laugh at celebrities who can't get off drugs, it's not that it's not that they don't want to get clean, it's that their support system isn't creating a, a platform where they can stand up on their own and say, "Yes, I can do this." And that was the hard thing because the only support I had after that, Doctor Atkins gave me Suboxone. But because I wasn't drug-seeking, because I wasn't out on the corner trying to, you know, find oxycodone on the corner, I mean, after all, I had jumbo bottles of the stuff. I didn't have to do drug-seeking. Dr. Atkins blew off any kind of support or treatment. So I had to go through this alone. And then he kept me on Suboxone, the drug that Five years. suppresses your withdrawal. And the idea is you wean off of it and you go on with your life. That isn't what Dr. Adkins did. I made the mistake of trusting him. Yet another doctor. And he kept me on Suboxone for five years, and I started developing neurological symptoms to the point where my neurologist thought I was having strokes. I have a heart monitor implanted in my chest because I was on so much Suboxone that I couldn't type. I would start typing, and I would fall out of my chair. You'd have page after page of it, Z or A or L. And now I can't drive because I'll not only have a chance of a seizure, but being in a moving car to this day screws me up. The neurological damage from being hosed with Suboxone is massive. So what happened when you went off the Suboxone? Well, there's before we even get what happened about the Suboxone, there's a reason. You're probably asking yourself, folks listening to this, well, of course, Patrick's rich. He sued these doctors, right? Nope. Problem is... In Virginia, my wife's thing was, if you go to a lawyer, I'm going to leave you. And in Maryland, well, my little house in Maryland here is in Somerset County. And in Somerset County, no one has ever won a medical malpractice suit against the doctor. (laughs) 
It is literally the the lawyer I talked to in Baltimore. He was like, "Oh yeah, yes, we we are good. This is great. Where do you live?" I'm like, "Somerset County." Oh, sorry. Can't help you. The sweetest man. I mean, I felt bad because he was just like. Ah, uh, yeah, Somerset County, Maryland, yeah, we know all about that. I'm sure if you have a, know any lawyers in Maryland and ask them about Somerset County, they'll probably start blessing themselves, <laughs> even if they're not Catholic. <laughs> I'll convert. <laughs> so five years, I start developing neurological symptoms, and Dr. Atkins, when I told him I want to get off the Suboxone, which meant giving up the monthly visit, <laughs> he got up and left the room, and I never saw him again. Mm. He stopped being my doctor. So I find a new doctor, but I can't get the Suboxone prescription renewed. Now, what Suboxone does is it covers up the withdrawal symptoms, but it does nothing to stop them. It's sort of like, imagine you're in a Looney Tunes cartoon, and you've dropped an anvil on your foot, but there's an acne bottle of delayed pain pills. You take the pain pill, and the pain from the anvil drop on your foot, your flat foot goes away. And you think, I'm cured, but you didn't read the bottle. What did it say? Not pain removal, but delayed pain pills. So Suboxone, I was still an addict. And once the Suboxone went out of my system, I got to experience cold turkey withdrawal. <laughs> That's a technicolor nightmare, folks. Trust dear old dad. I did not know you could blow your nose, throw up, urinate and defecate simultaneously <laughs> and i'm sharing that little gross picture with you if you ever think about taking this stuff intentionally like trying suboxone or trying an opioid just ask yourself if you want your family and friends to have that memory burned in their brain it's it's a fun thing you get to carry it with you the rest of your life and the hell of it is this was through no fault of your own right following a doctor's instructions and my thing is, and this is to all you guys that were involved in this, God damn every one of you. I am 51 years old. I have neuropathy so bad from the weight gain. I got type 2 diabetes. And because I was so bl blasted on the pain pills for so long, the type it took me a long time to lose the weight. I'm down to 200 pounds now. I was about... Close to 350 at one point. There's a picture I can post with this podcast and with one next to me today, and it looks like two different people. But now I live with neuropathy 24-7, but I can't take pain meds for the neuropathy because as an addict, if I go back on, on an opioid... Good night, nurse. So the only, re the only sources of pain relief I have available to me now are things like, let us plant this electrode in your back that'll send electrical signals down your spine. Now, but, it might cripple you. Well, here's the thing. It could cripple you. Also, because you're a diabetic and there's going to be an open wound around these infections, guess what? You could get gangrene. Yay! <laughs> I could also get that around my Baja <laughs> on both sides of my head. Thank you, Johns Hopkins. Thank you, Fair Oaks Hospital. Thank you, McCready Health Service in Crisfield, Maryland. Fair Oaks and Anova Hospital. It's so big, you can get lost in it. And it, that would be a good thing, because maybe they won't find you. <laughs> oh, they, 
At one point at Fair Oaks, they had had me in for so long that I got both C. dip, which is an intestinal disorder where all the good bacteria in your gut is wiped out by the antibiotics they're pointing in, pouring in you from surgery. And at the same time, MRSA, which is an antibiotic-resistant bacteria that can kill you, that colonized in my ear. I got to spend a long time in quarantine. Guess what? It's not fun. And when people in Colorado feel bad for you and get on the phone and send pizza to you while you're in quarantine, like four large supreme pizzas, the nurses stood outside the quarantine. <laughs> Pinging down, baby. Oh, man, they had a party. <laughs> they waved. <laughs> They're like, thanks, Pat. <laughs> and I'll say this about the nurses at McCready and Fair Oaks and even Johns Hopkins. The nurses, the staff, salt of the earth. Yeah, we brought them Smith Island cakes. And oh, God. They, their mother's... Uh, Fruitcakes. The one good memory I have of that period was when I would take go to Johns Hopkins with Amy. The staff that did the scheduling would come pray with her and hold hands with her. Folks, that's healing. Writing a prescription. Well, the doctors, you know, we went through a period, and I think this contributed to the current epidemic of people dying I'm taking this crap. You have to hurt to heal. You're not going to hurt and heal pain-free. It can't happen. You can mask it with an opioid that will kill you. It's a deadly poison. And we've been bamboozled, to, to steal a word from... The great Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, I love that guy. We've been bamboozled into thinking that these people can do no wrong. And most of these sons of bitches are either alcoholics or drug addicts. Even if, they're not, even if they, they don't have demons of their own, they're in debt and they're rushed. They're overworked. The hospital system wants them to get the, the most out of, their, out of them. And part of the problem is we're not, real, we're not resilient and self-reliant enough. When I was, when I was a kid, I was 13, 14 years old, and I was in the ring, and I was, getting, I was getting pounded into dog meat. And we were wearing gloves and foot protectors. We had mouthpieces, jocks, wearing jocks. You couldn't get hurt serious. But still, when you're a teenager and a 35-year-old pops you across the jaw, even if he's wearing, wearing gloves, it's good night nurse. You're on the floor, and it, you know. Little, little planets and birds. And, and I didn't want Dad to know I was getting hit like that. So if I got... A couple of times I got hurt bad in the sparring match. I mean, I had my nose reset twice without telling Dad. He just, I'd go home and hide my, my gi my and my, my bag, throw it in the washer as soon as I get home to bleach the blood out of it. And it does. Seltzer and baking soda. Scrub it with a toothbrush. <laughs> Little. And throw it in the wash right away. Cold water. Take it right out. But I said to one of my instructors, and his name was Remy Presas, Remy Amador Presas learned the martial arts of the Philippines watching his father being forced to train Japanese soldiers at gunpoint. Then he went on to study martial arts in Japan and China. 
He got a degree in physical education and took everything he learned and developed it into a system called modern Arnese, which can be used to teach not only martial arts, but physical activity in the traditional methods of the Philippine Islands, but in a safe way. So I said to Remy, in the ring, we're fighting with our fists. It's not like the stick fighting. We're not making stick-on-stick -stick contact. If I make a mistake, I get punched in the face. He said, well, that's going to happen in life. I said, yeah, but it hurts. I said, but you know that here. You're safe. You learn, you're learning how to move your body. You're learning how to turn when that punch is coming. Or to walk in so his reach is no good and you can step in. There's all these things you can only learn by taking the risk of getting hurt a little bit. Remy's here. You're not going to get hurt big unless Remy's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> unless you really piss him off. <laughs> and there are, there are times, I think, when a little problem, we run to the doctor and we, we're like, oh, the whole world has to stop. My left pinky toe hurts. And we don't assess that maybe we have to change our diet. Maybe if we just stop eating so much, some of our health problems. Yeah, and the, the people that distribute this poison were rewarding the doctors who were over-prescribing it. Right, and the doctors never bothered to point out to me or my wife that our weight was killing us. They would say it in passing, but they had no interest in, in sitting down and seriously saying, if you don't do this, Patrick's going to be a widow at 48, and that's what happened. The medical system didn't just wreck me with the opioids. They wrecked my wife because they never sat her down and really got through to her in a way she could understand that you can't do this to yourself. In constant denial. And I, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is except... Individually, we have to toughen up a little bit. Individually, and if you're a family member witnessing someone going through this hell, realize that you have to do something. You can be there to support them. You can take them to the doctor, but you're going to have to hope that your input over their lives gave them the character and the strength to do what had to be done because you can't do it for them. And it's a lonely, lonely thing. If you're facing this, and I've, I've quit smoking, I've lost an incredible amount of weight, I've gotten off opioids and Suboxone. What, what else? I mean, there's other stuff on the list. I got, I got past my dyscalculia and educated myself because the, the public school system in Pennsylvania wasn't worth 10 cents. You are capable of anything. I'm not special. If you're facing this and you feel helpless, look at your hand. This is a little, little thing I picked up in a book on Zen that really blew my mind. And at the time, I was, I was in agony, and it really felt like my life was over. And the advice was, look at your hand. Now it's open. Now close your hand. Open your hand again. You've got control over that. You can open and close your hand. That's a start. That's day one. Now pick something else for day two. 
and put the put the goal out of your head. Put the Hollywood ending out of your head. There's no day where you wake up and go, I am now drug free, and a rainbow comes through, and, and unicorns you, pop out of your sassy, butt. Your sassy gay friends climb in the window and throw glitter, and everything's gonna be wonderful now. It doesn't happen like that. What happens is you wake up one morning, you look around your empty room, you look at the place where your wife was, and you go. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. And there's sunshine outside. And whatever physical challenges I'm facing, it's not something God or the universe did. Things happened, and I had the strength to get over it. I had, the fam- I had a family to help me. I had friends to tease me, and I had, I had friends to walk away. To make me mad enough, I'll show you. <laughs> but if you're going through this, you're not alone. But you have to do this. You can't wait for somebody to do it for you. You can't wait for a guru. And you're, you're only one pill away from dying, folks. Yeah, that's the thing. I really believe that if Patrick hadn't walked through the door that day, he would have been dead within the week. Well, okay. Total honesty time, just so people know I'm telling the truth. The doctor's over-prescribed, and my wife's emotional reaction to my health issues did not help anything. And there was a third element that really drove the the addiction thing home, and that was my in-laws gave us no peace. We were newlyweds trying to cope with a really scary medical thing, and a week did not go by without my wife in tears because of something her parents did. Yeah, yeah. There was uh, literally, and holidays were explosions. So when you're in pain, if you're if somebody in your house is dealing with chronic pain and you're creating these cartoonish, Im- pointlessly emotional explosions over nothing, Christmas is nothing to get excited about. It's a date on the calendar. If your family was terrible last Christmas, they're going to be worse this Christmas. <laughs> so. Give yourself a Christmas present and say, no, I'm putting my partner first. And because I didn't have that, it wasn't until I got out of there that I was able to grab the reins. And you've got to really assess the situation. Walking away from Virginia was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It was harder than getting off drugs. But between the doctors and the chaos and the pressure of the area, Going grocery shopping, I can't hear. So I have to read body language. So I'm going grocery shopping, and I realize everyone around me is furious. And I, I pointed out to Amy once we were in a traffic jam. I said, everybody around us is grabbing the steering wheels, gritting their teeth, and lunging back and forth. She said, you're crazy. Look around. She goes, holy shit. <laughs> you're right. And that, that pressure cooker can have more effect on you than you realize. Oh, yeah. yeah. But the drug companies that make this stuff at some point have to be held accountable because they they're, they're, they're keep, I mean, I know we've got to make new drugs. We have well, to there's, there's a slope, though. You've got, you got the manufacture of it. Then you have the distribution of it. Then you have the doctors who are over-prescribing it. Like you say, my pinky toe hurts. Oh, here's some Vicodin. Yeah. And then they just keep renewing the prescriptions, and the, the poor son of a bitch doesn't even know what's happening. Well, now you go to the 
I've gone to the And e- then they get off. Finally, somebody says, no more Vicodin or oxycodone or hydrocodone for you. What do they do? They go to fentanyl. Or heroin. Well, they, they go to fentanyl because it's cheaper. Yeah. And China's pouring it into the country. That, that's... We realized that there was an opioid problem, and we're starting to stop writing prescriptions, which is causing a problem. Damage is done. Because the damage is done. The, the addiction is already in place. And we're treating the, the addicts like they're criminals when the actual criminals are the people on that slope they're wearing, talking about. They're wearing uh, uh, three-piece suits and, and uh, expensive shoes well, the, and well, silk the, neckties. Well, the topic of an upcoming episode. I have several examples of, of our own experience where we've watched the rich literally get away with, with almost practically murder and get away scot-free where, where somebody poor goes to jail for stealing 100 bucks worth of something. Yeah. yeah. It's that sort of system. But well, in the met- If you or anyone in your family, this is from dear old dad now, I got no dog in this fight. I've been blessed with not having to deal with alcohol or drugs my entire life. I'm a teetotaler. Why I am? I like Patrick. Except I got my weed now. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're gonna talk, we're gonna end on that one. But let you go. <laughs> but realize that your loved one didn't choose this. Even if they're injecting heroin, they probably started on a prescription pain reliever that was unmonitored and overprescribed, or left in a purse. And the, the sons of bitches that are doing this are still buying Mercedes. They're still vacationing in the Bahamas, and they've taken everything, everything from the American people. And that's just the, that's my opinion. Here's my opinion on this. I don't think anybody's evil. I've seen real evil. I've actually sat across the table with what may have been the devil himself, and I can tell you, he has very calm blue eyes, and he can promise you everything you, you want, everything you've ever wanted. All you got to do is make a deal. Take that one step past your moral line. Money and need and want can make us make really crazy leaps in logic. I once watched my uncles set up one of my cousins to walk into a bank representing herself as my mother to try and scam a bank into forfeiting my, a part of my mother's inheritance from her father. I tried to steal it from her. Yep, I forgot that. I mean, we've seen stuff that... So I don't think the people like the, like the make OxyContin, I don't think they were like wearing Darth Vader helmets and burning black candles when they said, we will now addict America. I don't think that happened. I think they realized too late that they really screwed up. You know, that's my grandfather used to say, you tripped over your dick. <laughs> But at some point, rather than say, you know, we made billions making you sick, so we're going to take a million and try to make it better. And that's a lousy deal, I know. And America's so dumb, we would have built statues of the sons of bitches, holding big pills <laughs> with happy faces on them. And instead, they, they went in and tried to finagle laws. They tried to play with, and the people that, were hooked unknowingly have become like this outclass outcast status. The West Virginia, they talk about on the news about this one 
drugstore that was still prescribed. It's still millions, millions of them. Yeah. And rather than look for a villain, rather than say this person's the bad guy, that this person did this to me. No, do it. Try what I did. Maybe it'll work for you. I can't say for a hundred percent, but remember what Clint Eastwood said: "None forgiven." Deserve got nothing to do with it. Nope. You got somebody threw the turd in the fan, and unfortunately, you were in the spray area. Wipe yourself off and rebuild your life because the dial always turns. I'm going to say something really horrible that an old friend of mine named Jack Ford, he's a Delmar sheriff's deputy, very tough. And he used to smoke Paul Malls, and he'd look at me. I know things are bad now, Pat. Remember, you wait long enough, the fucker always becomes the fucky. <laughs> and in my case, okay, the negative is I live with neuropathy. But they told you it would never get better. And it's getting better. It because, is getting better. Because I'm changing my life. I miss my wife every day, and the time I lost with her because I was fighting this battle, I'll never get back. And it would be foolish of me, unchristian of me, unBuddhist of me, to hold those drug companies and doctors in in some sort of vendetta. I don't like them, but I don't hate them. No, and it's up to us not to trust them. Right. It's up to me to be smarter when I deal with them. And one thing I was able to do with neuropathy, I was really afraid to try marijuana because I grew up Irish Catholic. Marijuana, you, I, I literally... I'm 75 years old. I have never smoked a joint in my life. I was convinced after some of the things I was told growing up that the minute I lit up, I would feel two demonic hands on my shoulder and a devil ta- devil's tail going someplace it shouldn't. <laughs> That would have been your dear old dad's hands. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. I, I was trying to say nicely that basically just Sister Mary Julia told me, one puff and you'll find yourself with a hot poker up your ass in hell. <laughs> <laughs> Sister Mary Julia also punched me in the mouth for getting a math problem wrong. And you told her? She hit like a girl. <laughs> and then she went crazy. <laughs> Folks, it's been, a, it's been a roller coaster ride. But I'm sorry. Go ahead with your thought. But I... I did the smart thing. I, I did some reading. I actually went on Reddit and talked to folks that weren't just like, hey, man, like, I'm smoking the weed, and it's, like, really cool, man. I talked to people that were actually talking intelligently about cannabis. Like, for example, don't call it marijuana because that's the, that's the slang term they started using in the United States to demonize what our Mexican neighbors were using for pain relief. <laughs> like aspirin. Yeah. Yeah. Or a beer. Yeah. Because I can tell you one thing, I use a lot of medical marijuana. It does not turn you into Jimmy Dataski. No. From Taxi. It, <laughs> it doesn't slow him down a step. No. But it kills the pain in your feet. And I, I also have the self-control to not use it when I don't need it. You're looking forward to the warm weather. Oh, God, because well, winter, when, when it's cold and you have neuropathy, I have neuropathy, I have really bad arthritis that I've been ignoring for too long. <laughs> We're going to take care of that soon. And when the winter comes, I lock up like the Tin Woodsman and just sort of lay on bed and wait for spring. 
But I still get work done. Yeah, you got a lot done. But anyway, but we're rambling now. No, but it was hell. Yeah. Oh, I know that. I was there. I watched it. It only seems like forever. Pain, shame, and desperation have a way of warping not only the way you view yourself, but the way you view the world. And when I started trying to get clean, I had this chart in my head. X number of days, it was going to be this. And I realized quickly, no, this is the rest of my life. And when you're in a situation where you realize something's the end of your life, the quality of those days is entirely up to you. Yeah. And while what I went through was hell, I can honestly stand up and look around and go, I did it. And not only did I do it, I look about as good as now as I did in high school. A little, little older, but I'm wearing a, a size large, baby. You're buff, baby. <laughs> right now he's wearing his, uh, what is it, a Wrangler jeans jacket? Yep. And on the back of it is a huge Bob Marley patch. A vintage. Vintage. Vintage 1980s tour patch I found in an apartment I was turning over back when I was working as a maintenance man. It was next to a stack of uh, jars of dread wax. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have any use for the dread, dread Every wax. Every little thing, it's going to be all right. I waited for years, and Mom surprised me. But she lost control of the sewing machine, so there's this big jagged stitch through the middle of it. <laughs> and that just makes me love it all the more. That's how it would have been in the 80s. Grandma, put this on for me. I'll see, dear. Zing. Oh, this, this denim's really heavy. <laughs> the, but the rest of you, addiction isn't the end of your life. It's not even the beginning. It's one day. It's a, it's a thing. And there's no steps. There's no process. It's your life. And if you're a family member or a close friend, I mean a close friend, remember you can't force people to do anything, but you can be there to support them, point them in a direction, suggest that they do something, and then follow up on it. You can't force it. They have to reach inside and pull their intestines out. It's, I've been in some tough scrapes. I've been in some car accidents. I've, I've been beaten senseless. <laughs> Still won the fight, but <laughs> got the hell beat out of me. While getting clean was difficult, it's not the end of the world. It's, it's not, what you expect of it is worse than what the actual process the, I was able to do a series of banjo banjo workshops during the height. That's right. Yeah. So, and they're still on film on our, our Patreon. So, feel free to check them out if you're a sponsor. You have spent the last hour listening to a father and son, best friends, having an actual conversation, sharing their their viewpoints, listening to each other, not waiting for their turns to talk. I interrupt you anytime I want because exactly. I'm your dear old dad. You're my daddy. And you're my son. You can do any damn thing you want to me. You still haven't gotten even, even with me for Virginia. Virginia. Last few seconds. Give you an idea of what real friendship is. The two of us were on the road. It's oh, the year God. 2001. That's we're a long on time. our way to Virginia to visit world-famous luthier. He makes guitars for Eric Clapton, Wayne Henderson. On the way into Galax, we stopped to visit... 
Carrie Hay of Hay Holler Records, where my dad visiting such a lovely southern home with a lovely southern We were family. having iced tea on the veranda. And dad decided to do the Irish Philadelphia thing and throw himself down the steps. Like, <laughs> I just tripped over one step. He went down like a sack of groceries. Oh, yeah, and that's true. Then we all tried to take you to a hospital. You insisted you were fine. Then on the highway, as you started to lose control over a 1968 Dodge, realized, I'm in a lot of trouble. And we got to the hospital where you walked up to the table and said, I think I need help, and collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> and as they were picking you up with a stick and a spoon, I just sat in the car. <laughs> what am I going to do? I can't drive. We get to Virginia, and it happens. Dad's on crutches. The Blue Ridge Music Makers Guild comes out to meet And they were nice guys. They these were, were. These were, and they think they still meet, but they were craftsmen that build instruments and give them the kids. Yeah, God bless them. And Wayne Henderson was teaching them. The video is wild. You can find it in the archives of our Patreon. I'll put a link. If you're a Patreon sponsor, you can check it out. So all these old Virginia Southerners are surrounding Dad, and they're fussing over, and they're making such a big deal that he's on a crutch. And all I said was, what's the big deal? He ain't the first Yankee to limp home from Virginia. And they went crazy. <laughs> to the point where 10 years later, as I was telling a friend of my wife's who lives in Galax about some of our adventures, she dropped her spoon and went white as a sheet and went, that was you? <laughs> <laughs> that's another adventure altogether. <laughs> well, we've had some times, folks. That's the kind of friends we are. And those are the kinds of stories we're going to be sharing. Right here on Sometimes Wrong. But never in doubt. Be sure to check us on Patreon.com, Pat and Patrick. And be sure to check out our sponsor. Moms and dads, do you want your kids to be strong like Grandpa and not soft like Dad? <laughs> Look at him over there with his phone and his, <laughs> his games. No. Kids got strong back in the old days by playing with sharp things, by getting dirt in their wounds. We're going to take them to where? Where are we going to go? We're going to go to Sergeant Joe Wallamoo's Super Action Fun Park! Yay! That's right. Sergeant Joe's Super Action Fun Park is a place where you can go to play with sharp metal, jagged wood, strange dogs with skin diseases, cats with runny noses, hobos with strange look in their eyes, and the super strange scary house full of fun trash! You'll make friends. You'll build up your immune system and build up them muscles. It's Sergeant Joe's Super Action Fun Park. Be sure to visit our healthcare station if you get injured. Olga was at Chernobyl. Put some dirt on it. That's right, Helga. You take care of those boys. I have Bactin, but somebody spit in it. That's right, Helga. All right, Super Joe Action's Fun Park. It's by the Alamo Rent-A-Car on Highway 5. Sergeant Joe's Super Fun Action Fun Park by the Alamo Get there. Bring your kids. Make them strong. Super Joe. <laughs> now you all know what I deal with on a daily basis. You didn't think I could improvise that off no, the cuff, did you? No. <laughs> it wasn't perfect. It's been a long time, 30 years since we've been on the radio. <laughs> I can still do all it. All right, folks. This is dear old dad. And Sergeant Joe. <laughs> signing off. And folks, all joking aside, you can beat it. Yes. There's nothing special about me. No, you all have the same, we all have the same innards, the same. If there's anything special about me, it's in my choice of friends. Yes. So reach out to a friend or a family member, and if they blame you, walk away, run away. You're looking for support, but you have to do it yourself. Nobody can do it for you. It's going to hurt like hell. But hey. 
You're going to wish you were dead, but when it's all over, you're going to be glad you're alive. And the stories you'll be able to tell. Oh, yeah. That, oh. <laughs> so until, well, how often are we going to do this? I don't know. Maybe next week. Maybe next week, because there's so many things we can talk about. Oh, my God, we can butcher anything. Well, not only that, we've, we've seen things. And, and done things. And we're not dumb. We're silly, but we're not dumb. I mean, could a dumb person do this? Let's see, bring it up. That's right, folks. Today on NPR, on super slow-mo drive time. As I said. We have squeaky doors. You have no idea. Rusty hint springs. What I go through. We have a poet. On a daily through, basis. Going through an emotional sulk. Say goodbye, Patrick. We have a poet going through an emotional crisis in line at a Walmart. Say goodbye. Right here on Anxiety Sounds on NPR. Say goodbye. Goodbye, everyone.